1990, an incumbent judge in Oklahoma City, a man named Frank Ogden, won 91% of the vote over his challenger, Josh Evans. Though the judge won the election handily, he never served his term on the bench. And the reason? Three months before the election, Judge Ogden died. It's amazing. 91% of Oklahoma City's electorate voted for a stiff, a dead man. And that shouldn't be a surprise, for that's been happening to us ever since the Garden of Eden. We could all vote for God to rule over mankind with truth and with mercy. Instead, we consistently vote for dead guys. We opt for humans who lack God's wisdom. And yet one day, God is going to reign over the earth that He created and over the affairs of men. And not merely from behind the scenes. No, no. God is going to take center stage. The Bible tells us that Jesus will return. He'll slay His enemies. He'll establish His throne in Israel. And He'll rule this planet for a thousand years. Ezekiel has promised a new covenant. God made a threefold promise to His exiled people. He would regather them to the land. He would breathe spiritual life into their regenerate hearts. And he would reestablish a political kingdom to Israel that would reign globally for a thousand years. God's promise to David that a son would never cease sitting on his throne and would rule the world will finally be realized for Jesus will return to fulfill all God's promises to Israel. This final period of life on earth as we know it, the scripture calls the kingdom age or the millennial kingdom. And it is the subject of Ezekiel's last nine chapters. Looking ahead, chapters 47 and 48 lay out new boundaries and new topography for the land of Israel during this kingdom age. Chapters 44 to 46 describe a new worship for Israel during this time. And tonight, chapters 40 through 43 tell us about a new temple that will be built in Israel. We call it the Millennial Temple, but before we dive in, it might be helpful to give you just a brief overview of the Hebrew Temple in its different forms over the different ages. You know, the Bible speaks of five different temples for God. That is, beside the New Testament Temple or the spiritual temple we call the church. The first dwelling place on the earth for God was His tabernacle. You remember the glory of God filled a tent in the wilderness. God traveled with His people Israel through the desert. When Israel settled the land, Solomon built a more permanent, a more glorious temple. It stood for 370 years until it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And when the Jews returned from Babel 70 years later... Their governor, Zerubbabel, he led them in building a second temple. Of course, it was a shack compared to Solomon's more glorious temple. So when Herod became king, in order to court favor with the Jews, he promised to expand this temple. This was the temple that was visited by Jesus. But it too was destroyed shortly thereafter in 70 AD by the Roman legion. 
And for the last 1,946 years, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the God-sanctioned plot where the temple was to stand, has been under Gentile control. Thus, any thought of the Jews rebuilding their holy temple has been absurd. That is, until June of 1967. That's when Israeli paratroopers took back the old city of Jerusalem. It was a marvelous, miraculous day. For the first time since 70 AD, Jews had regained military control of the Temple Mount. And of course, this area is also sacred to Islam. Two mosques also sit on top of the Temple Mount. And since 1967, Israel has managed to maintain a fragile truce by giving the Muslims religious control of the Temple Mount while they maintain military control, and that is the standoff that exists today. And yet, since 1967, there has been a growing movement in Israel to rebuild their sacred temple. You see, Judaism is a hollow religion without a temple and its altar, and it can only be built on God's ordained spot. Sacrifice and blood atonement is at the heart of Jewish religion. And without a temple, it's a missing part of their worship. Whenever we go to Israel, we always visit the Temple Institute. It's a group of Jews who are dedicated to this future temple. They've already built the instruments and implements and furniture needed for the temple. All they're waiting on is the actual temple to be built. And they are only one of many, many groups in Israel who are longing, who are working toward rebuilding a temple. To me, this is one of the most startling signs that we're in the last days, the prospects of a rebuilt temple. You see, we know from Scripture that two more temples are going to be built. Daniel 9 and Matthew chapter 24 both predict the rise of a world leader called the Antichrist. And he is going to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. He is going to enter its courts, and he is going to claim to be God. It's a blasphemous act, but it assumes that a temple will be rebuilt. When this happens, it infuriates God. He pours out fierce judgments on the earth. A time of great tribulation begins, culminating with the battle of Armageddon and Jesus' return to rule over this planet. And that's when the final temple, what we call the millennial temple, will be built by Messiah himself. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 predict, Behold the man whose name is the branch, a branch from the lineage of David, a messianic title, from out of his place he shall branch out, that is Jesus And he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. And notice this, so he shall be a priest on his throne. Now that's unusual. For in ancient Israel, there was a separation of church and state. Kings weren't allowed to be priests. Priests weren't allowed to be kings. That's why we know that this is a new temple yet to be built with new protocols. Jesus will rebuild the temple on its ancient site. He'll set up the worship of this temple, and he will rule from his temple 
over Jerusalem and over the world. And this is the temple that Ezekiel sees in tonight's chapters. He begins his description in Ezekiel chapter 40. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured, the year is 572 B.C. The day is Nisan the 10th, which was an interesting date on the Hebrew calendar. It's the first day of the preparations for the Passover. Remember, this was the day when the priest would inspect the sacrifices that would be offered in the temple later that week on the day of Passover. And this was the same day, remember, that Jesus presented himself to the nation. When he rode the donkey down the mountain into the city of Jerusalem, he was presenting himself for inspection. We call it his triumphant entry. Amazingly, on the same day, 600 years earlier, Ezekiel was taken back to the future and given a vision of this future temple. He says, On the very same day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. He's taken in a vision. What all occurred, we're not quite sure, but it was an experience with God. God took him. He's living in Babylon at the time by the river Chebar, and all of a sudden he gets caught up in this trance. He sees this vision. He's taken in this vision to a mountain, a high mountain there in the land of Israel. What mountain, we're not told. It could have been Mount Scopus, north of Jerusalem. Scopus looks down on the Temple Mount. But Ezekiel says that he sees what he calls something like the structure of a city. Perhaps he's trying to describe a modern city, what it would look like to a person in antiquity. God takes Ezekiel to Israel in a vision. Now he took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And whenever we go to Israel, we always have a tour guide. You hope you get a good one. After you go a few times, you request a good one. Well, here Ezekiel gets a tour guide. And by the way, this is a good one. We'll find out later. He has measuring instruments in his hands. The standard rod was 12 feet long. The line of flax was like a tape. It was for longer measurements. This guide is going to take Ezekiel on a tour of this temple And he's going to provide him exact measurements. Verse 4. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears. And fix your mind on everything I show you. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Now Ezekiel is about to be blown away. Remember, Ezekiel was a priest with no temple. That's like being a pilot with no plane or a lifeguard with no pool. And yet God chooses Ezekiel to show him a future temple. This has to infuse hope in his heart. It assures him that that Israel will return to their land. 
that this temple will be rebuilt. This thrills this exiled priest. And yet God warns him not to get wrapped up in the thrill and in the chill and miss out on the details that he's to record. See, this is one of the problems with spiritual experiences. You know, at times the lessons that these experiences intend to teach get lost in the emotions they elicit. You know, when God reveals himself to us, sometimes we get so caught up in the thrill of it all that we forget what it was that he said. Hey, whenever God reveals himself to us, the goal is usually more than just a divine tickle. He's trying to communicate to us truth, principles for our lives. We need to enjoy God's presence, but never miss God's purpose. And that's what God tells Ezekiel. Fix your mind on everything I show you, for you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. What Ezekiel is about to see, he needs to declare. So he needs to pay attention to every detail. Verse 5. Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long, which being a cubit and a handbreadth, and he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. Now Ezekiel's rod measured six cubits. A cubit was a standard of measurement in the ancient world. It was determined by the distance between the king's elbow and his longest finger. That was a cubit. The problem was that everybody's cubit varied just a little. Ezekiel says that the cubit he's using is a cubit and a handbreadth. If that's a Hebrew cubit, which was 18 inches, and a handbreadth, which was the width of a man's hand, or 3 inches, then the Babylonian cubit was 21 inches. This was the standard length of the cubit in Babylon. That would make Ezekiel's measuring rod, which was 6 cubits, 10 and a half feet are six inches longer than the height of a basketball goal. And here he mentions the, measures the wall around the temple. Its height and its width is one rod. That is, it's ten and a half foot thick by ten and a half foot thick. Now, whenever we go to Jerusalem, I always take our group to the Wailing Wall. We usually go at night. To me, it's prettiest at night. It's the last remnant of Herod's temple. People consider it a sacred spot. In fact, worshipers all over the world often fax their prayers to the temple wall people and have those prayers inserted into the crevices of the wall, thinking God would be more inclined to hear and answer their prayers if they were prayed at the wailing wall. Once I was praying at the wall, and I'll never forget it, I'm there praying, and God spoke to me in one of those clear fashions And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Sandy, I no longer dwell in temples made with stone. Today I dwell in believing hearts. Kind of put it in perspective for me. And you know, because of that truth, there are some folks who disagree with a literal interpretation of Ezekiel's vision. What does God care about another temple made with stones? And so they allegorize these verses. They apply these verses to the spiritual temple, the church. But that is not the clear reading of our text. 
Why is it God tells Ezekiel, make sure you pay attention to every dimension? Make sure you pay attention to what you see. There's more going on here than just spiritual allegory. I believe that when Jesus returns to earth and sets up his kingdom, a physical, literal temple will again serve a purpose. Again, if this is just allegory, why is Ezekiel shown such technicality and implored to go into such detail? In these verses, Ezekiel's tour guide gives him a verbal blueprint for a future temple yet to be built. Now, beginning in verse 6, we're going to read a while. Ezekiel is going to describe the three gates to this temple's outer court. The gate on the east, on the north, and on the south. And then there are three corresponding gates within the inner court. And as we read these verses, I want to throw up some drawings to help you envision what Ezekiel is describing. So as I read, you read with me, but you also keep one eye on the screen. Keep one eye on the screen, one eye on your Bible, and you'll get this just fine. Are we ready? Then he went to the gateway which faced east. And he went up its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod wide, and the other threshold was one rod wide. Each gate chamber was one rod long and one rod wide. Between the gate chambers was a space of five cubits. And the threshold of the gateway by the vestibule of the inside gate was one rod. He also measured the vestibule of the inside gate one rod. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight cubits. And the gate post, two cubits. The vestibule of the gate was on the inside. In the eastern gateway were three gate chambers on one side and three on the other. The three were all the same size. Also, the gate posts were of the same size on this side and on that side. He measured the width of the entrance to the gateway, 10 cubits, and the length of the gate, 13 cubits. There was a space in front of the gate chambers, one cubit on this side and one cubit on that side. The gate chambers were six cubits on this side and six cubits on that side. Then he measured the gateway from the roof of one of the gate chambers to the roof of the other. The width was 25 cubits as door faces door. From the entrance to the gate, Actually, stop there just for a minute. You got your eye on your Bible. You got your eye more on the screen than you're on your Bible. It's easier to kind of see it, isn't it? Yeah. Here's what's going on. There are three gates in the outer court. They correspond with three gates on the inner court. And from the entrance of the gate to its exit was 43 and three-quarters feet. In other words, these were long gates. These were oriental gates. These were gate systems where you didn't just, we think of a gate, we think of one swinging fence, but their gates were like systems of of, uh, protection or systems of commerce. People would line the inside of the gates and various functions would go on in the city's gates. The gates leading into the temple were that kind of a construction. They were these long walkways. These gates too were very, very high. We're told 
that he measured the gatepost 60 cubits high. That's 105 feet. And the court all around the gateway extended to the gatepost. These gates were skyscrapers, the height of a 10-story building. He goes on, from the front of the entrance gate to the front of the vestibule of the inner gate was 50 cubits. In other words, there's an inner gate opposite the outer gate. There were beveled window frames in the gate chambers and in their intervening archways on the inside of the gateway all around. And likewise in the vestibules. There were windows all around on the inside and on each gatepost were palm trees. In other words, this temple had some craftsmanship going on. It had some ornamentation going on. There were arches. There were beveled windows. There were engraved palm trees. Then he brought me into the outer court. And there were chambers and a pavement made all around the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement. The pavement was by the side of the gateways corresponding to the length of the gateways. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gateway to the front of the inner court exterior. 100 cubits toward the east and the north. On the outer court was also a gateway facing north. And he measured its length and its width. Its gate chambers, three on this side and three on that side, its gateposts and its archways, had the same measurements as the first gate. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. Its windows and those of its archways and also its palm trees had the same measurements as the gateway facing east. It was ascended by seven steps and its archway was in front of it. A gate of the inner court was opposite the northern gateway just as the eastern gateway. And he measured from gateway to gateway 100 cubits. And so you've got three gates on the outer court, then three gates on the inner court. After that, he brought me toward the south. And there are a gateway was facing south, and he measured its gateposts and archways according to these same measurements. So all six gates were of the same size, the three on the outer wall and the three on the inner, in the inner court. Now There were windows in it, and in its archways all around like those windows... Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. In other words, they were rectangular. These gateways were rectangular, 50 cubits long, 25 cubits wide. Seven steps led up to it and its archways was in front of them and it had palm trees on its gateposts, one on this side and one on that side. There was also a gateway on the inner court facing south and he measured from gateway to gateway toward the south 100 cubits. Then he brought me to the inner court through the southern gateway. He measured the southern gateway according to these same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways were according to these same measurements. There were windows in it, and in its archways all around, it was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. Again, the gates were rectangular shaped. There were archways all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits wide. Its archways faced the outer court Palm trees were on its gateposts, and going up to it were eight steps. There were seven steps leading up to the outer gates, but then there were eight steps leading up to the inner gates. And he brought me into the inner court facing east. 
He measured the gateway according to these same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways were according to these same measurements, and there were windows in it, and in its archways all around, it was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. Its archways faced the outer court, and palm trees were on its gate posts on this side and on that side, and going up to it were eight steps. And aren't you glad for the pictures? Verse 35. Then he brought me to the north gateway and measured it according to these same measurements. Also, its gate chambers, its gate posts, and its archways, it had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. Its gate posts faced the outer court. Palm trees were on its gate posts on this side and on that side. And going up to it were eight steps. There was a chamber and its entrance by the gate posts of the gateway where they washed the burnt offering. In the vestibule of the gateway were two tables on this side and two tables on that side on which to lay the burnt offering or slay the burnt offering, the sin offering and the trespass offering. There are offerings in this temple, by the way. At the outer side of the vestibule, as one goes up to the entrance of the northern gateway, were two tables. And on the other side of the vestibule of the gateway were two tables. Four tables were on this side and four tables on that side. By the side of the gateway, eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifices. And Ezekiel is being obedient. He is writing down everything that he sees. There were also four tables of hewn, that is, hand-carved stone for the burnt offering. One cubit and a half long, one cubit and a half wide, and one cubit high. On these they laid the instruments with which they slaughtered the burnt offering and the sacrifice. Inside were hooks, a handbreadth wide, fastened all around, and the flesh of the sacrifices was on the tables. Now this was all in the north gateway to the inner court. This was where the animals were prepared for sacrifice. And notice there will be animals sacrificed in the millennial temple. We'll talk about this later. This is a provocative thought. Verse 44, outside the inner gate were the chambers for the singers in the inner court. Singers have got to have a place to practice. And so this temple has a choir room. This is where the singers gathered to practice and rehearse before they worshiped God. One was facing south at the side of the northern gateway and the other facing north at the side of the southern gateway. Then he said to me, this chamber which faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. These are the priests that handled the music and the worship that went on in the temple. Whereas the priests that handled the sacrifices were stationed in the chamber facing the north. We're told the chamber which faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok from the sons of Levi who come near the Lord to minister to him. And he measured the court 100 cubits long and 100 cubits wide, four square. This was the inner court, 100 by 100, the area between the inner gates where the sacrifices were offered on the bronze altar. Now the altar was in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple and measured the doorposts of the vestibule. Five cubits on this side and five cubits on that side. 
And the width of the gateway was three cubits on this side and three cubits on that side. The length of the vestibule was 20 cubits and the width 11 cubits. And by the steps which led up to it, there were pillars by the doorposts, one on this side and another on that side. And now you've just read a chapter of the Bible most Christians have never read. Congratulations. But he's working from the outside in. And he's gotten all the way to the vestibule or the foyer of the temple itself, the holy place where God's presence will dwell. Now let's sort it all out for a minute and understand what we've just read. Written blueprints aren't really stimulating reading. You get that impression. Let's sum up some things. The outer court of this temple was surrounded by a wall. And inside this wall, it had 30 chambers used by the priests. In this wall, there were three gates on the east, north, and south. These were oriental gates, or as we've pointed out, long corridors. Their entranceway was 17 and a half feet wide by 23 feet long. Three small chambers of equal size were on either side of the corridor. The entire structure was how many cubits? 25 cubits by 50 cubits. That is 43 and three quarters feet wide by 87 and a half feet long. The distance from the outer gates to their corresponding inner gate was 100 cubits or 175 feet. Seven steps led up to the outer gates and eight steps led to the inner gates. This is interesting. For in Scripture, seven is the number of completion, whereas eight starts over. It's the number of new beginnings. Seven completes it, eight starts afresh. Seven is the number of completion, eight is the number of new beginnings. And isn't it interesting that when you come to Christ... As you're coming to that outer court, when you come to Christ, this is the end of your wanderings. This is the end of your emptiness. You find the missing piece when you find Jesus. You become complete in Christ Jesus. He is all that you'll ever need. But once you're in Christ, you realize what? That it's just the beginning. Yes, I'm complete in Christ, but now there's a whole new world to learn and to grow and to experience. In Christ, there are new beginnings. And so these steps might also teach us some spiritual lessons about our relationship with the Lord. The gateposts, too, were engraved with palm trees. A palm tree was a Jewish symbol for beauty and fruitfulness and victory. Remember when Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, how did the Jews welcome him? by laying out palm fronds across the path. It was a symbol of his triumph. In the north gate, there were tables with hooks at the corners. These hooks held the sacrifice down on the table while it was being slaughtered. These tables were of hewn or hand-carved stone. Remember in Solomon's temple, 4,000 musicians ministered on a full-time basis. I would imagine when Jesus reigns, there will be much more joy and praise than Solomon's temple ever saw. And they'll need more than 4,000 musicians, and thus they have a chamber here for the musicians to warm up in. And then there'll be priests who will offer sacrifices to God. 
They're called the sons of Zadok. Zadok was the one priest who remained faithful to King David when David's son, Adonijah, rebelled against him. And it seems here God is rewarding the father's faithfulness by blessing his future sons. Now, having read, having summed up some of the high points here in chapter 40, you get the flavor of what's happening. Ezekiel is giving architectural descriptions. And the next two chapters are very similar. And so for the sake of time, I'm not going to read chapters 41 and 42. I'm going to summarize those chapters with a few comments. And afterwards, uh, you can ask any questions that you might have. Now in chapter 41, Ezekiel measures the doorpost and the entryway. Remember, he got us all the way up to the to the foyer, the vestibule of the, of the holy place, the, the temple itself. And so now he measures the doorpost and the entryway into the holy place, or the temple's inner sanctum. And it resembles what we found in both Solomon's temple and in the temple of Jesus' day, Herod's temple. Verse 22 mentions the one piece of furniture that's in the holy place, the altar that stands before the holy of holies. This time it's made of wood, whereas before it was made of gold. In essence, the holy place was God's throne on the earth. In Ezekiel's temple, the holy place was 105 feet long by 35 feet wide. And within it, there is the most holy place, called elsewhere the Holy of Holies. It takes the shape of 20 cubits by 20 cubits, or 35 feet square. Around the outside of the holy place were three stories of chambers designated for the priests. Again, the priests have to work. They have to have a place where they can perform their tasks. And so around the outside of this temple are priestly chambers. There's three stories of them, and they're all constructed in sort of a staircase configuration. Behind the holy place was another building that butted up against the temple proper on the west side. This structure is 122 and a half feet wide by 157 and a half feet long. Ezekiel measures this building in verse 12, but he doesn't tell us its purpose. You know, we've got a warehouse that we rent because there's no storage here in, in the building. Uh, we call it the annex. And so whenever uh, the clutter gets too much, we load up the van and we haul it off to the annex and we throw it in the annex and worry about it later. Maybe this is the temple's annex, I'm not sure. It's kind of the warehouse space for uh, decluttering the temple, I'm not, I'm not sure. Now the inner court measured 100 cubits by 100 cubits or 175 feet by 175 feet, while the outer court measured 500 cubits by 500 cubits. That's a big plaza. That's a big platform. That's 875 feet by 875 feet. That's a total of 765,625 square feet. Ezekiel's temple covers an area 17 and a half acres. This makes Ezekiel's temple much, much larger than either Solomon's or Herod's. And perhaps most interesting about this temple are the engravings in the walls of the holy place in Ezekiel's temple. Apparently, God is into wood paneling. 
Your wife might not be, but God is into wood paneling. Engraved into the walls of the temple's holy place were cherubim and palm trees. Now, cherubs were angels. You recall the prophecy of Ezekiel began in chapter 1 with a vision of cherubim and the wheels of God's throne chariot. Here these cherubs are engraved in the panels within the holy place. Now the cherubs in Ezekiel chapter 1 had four faces. That of a lion, that of an ox, that of a man, and that of an eagle. And we noted how that all four faces speak of Jesus. Jesus is the lion or the king. He is the ox or the ultimate servant. He is a man like us, and Jesus is like an eagle. He is sovereign over all things, or God himself. But in this temple, the the cherubs only have two faces, of a man and of a lion, which is probably a reference to the two comings of Jesus. He came the first time as a man, incarnate in the flesh. He comes the second time as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the conqueror on the throne. He's the king of the jungle. Now in chapter 42, Ezekiel continues to describe the priestly chambers that surround the holy place. And in verse 11, his subject are the walkways. And notice the comment that he makes at the end of the verse. Verse 11 of chapter 42. And all their exits and entrances were according to plan. In all their exits and entrances were according to plan. Here's the big takeaway from tonight's passage. All that God does is according to plan. Understand that. All that God does is according to plan. The God that we serve isn't slaphazard. He does nothing makeshift. God doesn't jimmy-rig his acts. No, God has an exact plan and purpose for all he does, even what he does in your life. You might not always see his purpose. Sometimes it's hidden. He might not choose to tell you what's going on. Informing us about everything he does is not God's obligation. Our duty is to trust in him. But God has a purpose for all He does. And notice what God plans. All the exits and the entrances. God has planned His entrances into your life. God has planned your exits from situations. He's planned the entrances and the exits. You know, we pray and pray and pray for God to come to our aid. Before we get, we forget, though, that His plans are best. And He's in charge of when to enter the situation, when to intervene on our behalf. But Lord, it, today, you, you, the, the bill comes due today, Lord, please. You know, we think we know when He needs to enter the situation. No, God plans His entrances. At other times, we want to move on and go on to something else. We're tired of where we are. God says, stay put. God also plans His exits. And our exits, all the entrances, all the exits, are planned by God. We need to learn to trust God's workings in our life. Always remember, 
His exits and entrances are according to His plan. And then in verse 15 to 20, Ezekiel measures the wall that surrounds not only the temple, but the entire Temple Mount area. It measures 500 rods by 500 rods. Now remember, a rod equaled six cubits, or ten and a half feet. That means that 500 rods by 500 rods makes this temple platform almost an entire square mile. That's the size of the old city of Jerusalem today. Not just the Temple Mount, but the whole old city is one square mile. This is obviously going to require a change of topography in and around Jerusalem during this millennial kingdom. And it's interesting, Zechariah 14 predicts just that kind of alteration. Verse 3 of Zechariah 14 tells us, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against the nations, as He fights in the day of battle. In that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. When Jesus comes, an earthquake is going to completely alter the topography in and around Jerusalem, and apparently enlarge the Temple Mount. You know, today people who live in apartments on the Mount of Olives will tell you about the frequent tremors that shake their homes. The ground there is very unstable. When Pan Am tried to build the Intercontinental Hotel on top of the Mount of Olives, they had to revise their site plans. A fault line was discovered running right through the middle of the Mount of Olives. It's geologically unstable. This mountain, the Mount of Olives, just east of the Temple Mount, is under tremendous pressure. As a matter of fact, it's waiting on the drop of a single foot. All it's going to take is the landing of Jesus' big toe. And that mountain is going to split in two and open up and dramatically transform the landscape of Jerusalem. Chapter 43. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. In Nehemiah's day, it was known as the Shushan Gate. In Crusader times, the Gate of Mercy. Today, it's called the Golden Gate. Ezekiel refers to it as the East Gate. It's a famous gate, and we'll find out why next week. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with His glory. Now the temple's been measured, been built, it's been measured. Now all it needs is for the glory of God to fill it. Notice the glory of God here is a He. His voice was like the sound of many waters. I believe Ezekiel sees Jesus. You remember how Revelation chapter 1 verse 15 describes Jesus as having a voice like the sound of many waters. Ever stand at the bottom of a giant waterfall? The roar is so deafening. You can't hear the person standing right next to you, even when they try to talk to you. They can shout in your ear and you can't hear them. You know, today we're surrounded by so many different voices. 
Our world shouts lies at us from all directions. But when we see Jesus, His voice is going to drown out all the others. And then Ezekiel continues. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. In other words, what he sees here is like the incredible visions that he saw earlier in chapter 1 and in chapter 10. Verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Chapter 10, verse 4 refers to the glory Ezekiel saw with the phrase, the brightness of the Lord's glory. This is so provocative because this is the exact terminology that the writer of the book of Hebrews uses to describe Jesus. He is the brightness of the Lord's glory. When Solomon dedicated the first temple, the glory of God filled the house. But Judah's idols grieved God's spirit. And Ezekiel chapter 10 tracked the glory's departure from the temple. The prophet saw the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, the glory that rested in the Holy of Holies. He saw it, it's tangible, the tangible presence of God on the earth. He saw the glory rise up from the ark and gradually, reluctantly begin to move out. It moved out of the temple quarters. It moved through the east gate. It moved up the Mount of Olives to the top of the mount where it ascended back into heaven. It's interesting, there's no mention of the Shekinah glory ever returning to reside in the second temple, Herod's temple. That is until the glory came incarnate or in the flesh. The glory never returned to Herod's temple until Jesus walked its halls, until he came back and taught in its porticos. And when the risen Christ returned to heaven, where did he return from? He went back to the top of the Mount of Olives, the same place from which the glory departed in Ezekiel. And Jesus ascended back into heaven from the top of the Mount of Olives. He followed the same path that he took when he left the temple in Ezekiel's day. And this is the path that Jesus is going to take in the last days when he returns to earth. As I read earlier in Zechariah 14, his feet will touch down where? On the Mount of Olives. The mount will split in two and Jesus will reign in Jerusalem. And here in verses 4 and 5, Ezekiel sees, I believe, Jesus entering into this new temple, this final temple. The glory of the Lord will return to the temple the same way he left. From the top of the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate or the golden gate. And then I heard him, that is the Lord, speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. This must still be the man who was giving him the tour. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places." Notice the millennial temple will be the last temple. 
Here God's feet will rest for all eternity. This will be His forever footstool. Verse 8. When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost, with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry in the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. What was done that offended God so severely We're not sure. Here he talks about the doorpost of his temple and another doorpost. A threshold of his temple and another threshold. And he refers to this other as abominations. Some teachers think that God is speaking here to what will happen in the great tribulation on the temple mount. Some have suggested that the way the Jews will build their temple or get to build their temple is that they will erect a partition or a wall on the temple mount that separates the Muslim mosques and the temple courts. This might allow the temple to be built, but it's going to offend God. As he says here, why did you set... My doorpost against their doorpost. My threshold against their threshold. God is offended by being asked to share sacred space with the false god of Islam. When Jesus returns, no one should make that same mistake. They'll put away their harlotry, far away from God, he says. This verse could also refer to the Antichrist's actions in the Great Tribulation. Daniel 9 implies that he'll defile God's altar. This also could be what prompts God's anger. Verse 10 tells us, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws, write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. God's plans in these chapters are certainly not figurative. The law of the temple is to keep its entire designs, all its ordinances, all its forms, all its laws. The whole temple compound is to be holy or special. It's a sacred place in which Jesus intends to one day reside once He's built it. Think of it. One day, our Lord Jesus is going to don a hard hat and He's going to strap on a carpenter's belt and He's going to build for Himself a temple. In verse 13 through the end of the chapter, Ezekiel gives us dimensions of the sacrificial altar and the various sacrifices that are going to be offered to the Lord. It's a large, elevated altar on multiple platforms. At the top, where the sacrifice is roasted, it's 11 cubits high by 12 cubits wide. That is 19 and a quarter feet tall by 21 feet wide. It had four horns on the altar to, again, secure the sacrifice. And there was a staircase leading up from the east to the top of the altar. In verse 18 and following, instructions are given for purifying and dedicating this altar. 
For seven days, multiple animals are to be sacrificed. A young bull, a kid goat, a ram, all without blemish. And their blood is to be sprinkled on the altar. That's just for its dedication. Chapter 43 ends with these words. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priests shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, says the Lord. Obviously, this altar will also be for ongoing sacrifices to God. Now, there are some strange things going on in these chapters. First, there are items missing from Ezekiel's temple that were fixtures in the first two temples. For one, there's no silver, there's no gold in this temple. You remember Solomon's temple was lavished with gold, not here. Perhaps God is wanting nothing to distract the millennial worshipers from the one sitting on the throne, Jesus Christ. Second, in Solomon's temple, hewn or hand-carved altars and steps were prohibited. God didn't want the worshipers distracted by a building's art or a priest's skill. Worship wasn't about human ingenuity. You know, it's sad, but throughout history of the church, we've been guilty of both at times. Elevating preachers and building ornate artistic buildings, both have robbed God of His glory. And yet in Ezekiel's temple, we find both hewn stones, hewn altars, and elevated altars. Evidently, the presence of Jesus in this temple will be so overwhelming that there'll be little chance of anyone being distracted by a priest or by a work of art. And then also notice that there's no veil in Ezekiel's temple. Why? Because there's no separation between God and man. For on the cross, Jesus saw to it that we were fully reconciled. There's also no menorah in this temple. Since in the kingdom age, Jesus will be the light of the world. There's no sacred bread, for Jesus is the bread of life. And it's interesting, there's no Ark of the Covenant in this temple. And Jeremiah 3, verse 16 tells us why. I'll read it to you. They will say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord. This is an unprecedented development. Throughout Hebrew history, the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence. It was the ultimate Jewish keepsake. But when Jesus resides in the temple, the symbol will no longer be needed. The substance will overwhelm the symbol. The Ark of the Covenant will be a forgotten relic in light of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not even Indiana Jones will care to track it down. And there's one more characteristic of this future temple that really is strange. Why the animal sacrifices? In the New Testament book of Hebrews, it makes it clear that the sacrifice of Jesus made animal sacrifices obsolete. Since the blood of Jesus cleanses us fully, there should be no need any longer for the blood of bulls and lambs. Perhaps... And I believe that these sacrifices that are offered in the Millennial Temple are not offered as atonement for sin, but as memorials 
to Jesus. You remember the Old Testament sacrifices were all symbolic of Christ. They spoke of His work on the cross. Perhaps these sacrifices do the same, but in arrears, looking backward, not forward. Just as communion and baptism remind us of Jesus and His work, these sacrifices may also remind believers in the kingdom age of what our Lord Jesus did for them on the cross. It's interesting, the temple sacrifices lasted roughly a thousand years from the first temple to the Roman demolition of the second temple. And for a millennium, these Jews are going to see the sacrifices. The sacrifices, they never really grasped their significance of before. But they're going to see them again for another thousand years. And they're going to be able to take advantage of the opportunity this next time. They'll see Jesus in their sacrifices. 